Welcome to Tech Breakfast, today's top headlines served hot by your host Aaron Bewley and Tyler Gates. So grab your coffee and let's get into it. All right, today is Friday, June 19th. With us today is Rob Hirschfeld. He's the co-founder and CEO at RackN. On Twitter, he's at Zhickle, so that's vehicle with a Z. He's a co-host of the latest Shiny podcast. They focus on cloud, edge, DevOps, operations, and immutable infrastructure. He's also on the board at LF Edge, so I imagine he's got a lot going on. Uh, but LF Edge is the Linux Foundation group focused on enabling Linux Edge things. Rob is in Austin, Texas, and you can read more about him on robhirschfeld.com, which I'll drop in the show notes. Welcome to the show, Rob. Excellent. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We were talking a little bit over email yesterday, and I think you said you wanted to talk about AWS ice cream cone sundaes or something like that. <laughs> what is it? With a cherry on top. Snow cone. Snow cone. Nice. AWS runs out of project names. I think they've got a, a, a finite list in there. They're just com- combining words. Yeah, that's a that was a hot item uh, that dropped a couple days ago, and I, I think a lot of uh, people like me who track edge technologies and um, on-premises infrastructure, Amazon's really reaching their fingers uh, and devices deep into that space. And so Snowcone's a, a sort of interesting thing. And they dropped a sort of cute promotional video about it too. Um, but I probably should explain what it is first. <laughs> it's not the type of thing you want. It's not like uh, New Orleans uh, Snowcone with, uh, you know, cream and sugar syrup on it. It's uh, it's part of this line of products they call the Snow family products. Um, I guess winter is coming uh, from that perspective. So um, a couple of years ago, they introduced something called a Snowball, which was designed basically to transfer huge amounts of data into Amazon. And that product evolved because they said, oh, there's a CPU in here. We could put lambdas on it. We could put VMs on it. And they actually turned it into... Um, it's still a mammoth storage device, but a little compute node, single single node compute node, um, and got it got pretty popular. But it was big; uh, it's the size of a pretty beefy suitcase. Um, definitely not. Oh, that's right, size. and that turned into the snowmobile, which was snowmobiles upscale, right? <laughs> yeah, that was the the uh, semi that they brought on stage. Right, exactly, and that one's a massive, you know. Pull, pull, pull all our data out because uh, it's the bandwidth of a truck across the country is still better than than a fiber optic cable, and, uh, and it's not fat. And the latency is bad, but the, the bandwidth is high. And um, and then this time they went the other direction, so they introduced a tissue box sized compute device. Um, it looks about the size of two nooks, uh, which is Intel's next unit of compute. It's like a little embedded device, um, but hardened. Uh, pre-wired, they actually in, uh, print the, sh- the return shipping label directly on it. Oh, nice! Um, and it's 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 cool. It's it's a very thoughtful, um, you know, form factor for you know setting up a small, basically, you know, just think of it as a backup drive that you're gonna you know store all your data on and then ship it back to Amazon uh, or put it online and let it securely transfer data back and forth. Yeah. That's interesting. Is it yeah. does it have two drives in it? Are they rated together? I don't I don't know the exact specs. Um, yeah. And this is where where my head. I'm a commodity hardware. You know, uh, a lot of open source history. A lot of you know, sort of self managed infrastructure. And this is sort of the polar opposite of that. This is let Amazon take care of all those details. Yeah, all the things, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. That that's, that's interesting. I, I had not heard of that. Thanks for bringing it up. That's actually pretty cool. I'll have to dig into it a bit. It's I I think that if you know there are a lot of good use cases for you know like a snow a snowball the bigger the bigger mm-hmm. application this puts a dev unit in your hands or you could ship it to yeah I can see tons of applications for it it's pretty straightforward um, and it might open up the market for you know there's tons tons of people in edge related industry doing similar types of of operational units trying to trying to create little Kubernetes clusters on the edge or remotely managed Kubernetes clusters uh, made out of Raspberry Pis, actually Rackends got something called Edge Lab that lets people build Pis into a you know, uh, Kubernetes cluster. I've seen a lot of people toying around with that uh, on Twitter lately. A uh, few people have built out uh, Kubernetes clusters. I wonder if they're actually using that as sort of the foundational way they're getting to it. This, the challenge for this one is it's just one node. Oh, wow. And that's the sort of the, the for, well, for uh, Snowcone. Gotcha. So Snowcone's a, a node. Um, it's not clear that how you would cluster them into multiple similarly. Um, I'm not even sure they do a lot of snowball clustering. Interesting. That's, that's where my head sort of scratches. Or you asked about redundancy straight off the bat for the drives. Um, yeah. Well, I'm just looking at the device, and I would hate to, uh, to, to dump data to it and send it off. And sure, it's rugged, but there's only one drive in there. Uh, I don't know what type of drive it is. It says it's eight terabyte. Maybe it's solid state. Uh, but my mind just went to platters, right? And then, you know, if I'm shipping this thing, does that one, uh, that single drive in there not have any issues, hopefully? I'm, I'm assuming it's solid state, but it, yeah. <laughs> there's actually a redundancy problem in the shipping. <laughs> oh, yeah. here's all my critical data. <laughs> uh, you know. Yeah. That's uh, true. You know, Postal service, please do not lose this package. I, I, right. I need a return receipt on it. It's a nice, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. It, it sort of advances the whole conversation about edge and what is edge uh, pretty well from that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, what else is going on? What else is in the news? I saw an interesting article about what Amazon was doing in their um, warehouses to help employees maintain social distance right now. They're actually using AI and sort of video analysis to draw circles for distancing around employees and then highlighting when they get too close to each other and stuff like that um, in real time. So they've got displays all over the place in there. Oh, we're losing you, Tyler. Yeah, the the connection's not super duper reliable. Um, I've noticed that there's been a bit of clipping. So uh, awesome. Tyler's in the middle of nowhere right now. Which is just a little south of, which is apparently just a little southwest of Austin, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tyler, you with us, buddy? And he's gone. All right. Well, yeah. So what he's telling you about is the fact that there's these little circles that are around people, and uh, yeah, he just texts it. Turns out the connection is absolute garbage. I wonder, like, so how does it? How do they effectively let people know? Hey, you're too close. Do they have like a little? shot collar on that says hey back away <laughs> um or does it have facial recognition oh there he is he's back it have facial yeah, it, recognition and then you get a write-up that says you walked too close to people so does it go into that how does it how does it alert them or, or how does how does it become actionable what i saw it looked like they had um displays around that would actually they were, they were meant to be in traffic areas where employees could see it in real time it would actually sort of highlight if it was red or if they got too close to each other and stuff Oh, yeah. okay. So they look at a screen to tell them that they're too close to somebody rather than looking at the people they're walking by to see if they're too close. <laughs> yeah, it didn't it didn't sound like the most elegant solution. I wonder how much of it is more like contact tracing on the backside too, but 
still yeah. still kind of interesting to use it in real time. So I heard a story on a, a couple of months ago um, in about a company in Norway that I think it was Norway, it was, uh, definitely in Europe, that had already had a technology for dangerous areas and workspaces. Like, hey, you're walking under the crane. We oh, could drop cool. something oh, yeah. on you. Yeah. And and so they had video that would analyze these these you know protected areas, and then you you'd wear a pager, and so they would use a haptic buzz of different intensity to alert you when you were getting in near or into one of these uh, designated zones. That's brilliant. So That's super awesome. simple, like closed loop technology. So you yeah. just hand people a pager, they they track it for you, and then so I thought they were adapting this to. People, so you could use individual people. You can. It's pretty easy to have an algorithm to identify sure. an individual, and then yeah, you just need a buzzer on them. Haptic haptic feedback is especially powerful as a signaling device. If you if you if you get yeah, a strong for buzz, sure. just the video game corollary there, right? There are lots of games where you get closer to an objective, as an example, if you're seeking something, and it and it just buzzes like higher and higher and higher. It's very intuitive. You know, the more it buzzes, depending on how you're programmed, right? Is very bad or very good. That's what I've been playing Half-Life Alex and the times when you're doing something and a bomb explodes on you and your your hands are shaking, your hands are literally vibrating yes. because of that. You're like, oh cool. You feel like you touch the or you touch the live wire, there's some wire things and you like hit a wire and you're you you feel shocked. Oh that's um, cool. It's amazingly compelling. That's really cool. Okay, I, I apparently I've got to play that. I just that's toyed two with days that in game. A row. Yeah. And and I haven't gotten to all of that yet, but it is it is immersive. It's really neat. It is a very very neat game. What's the concept? Uh, you are solving puzzles and battling aliens on um, future Earth. I'm in. Yep. It's, it's awesome. it'll it'll. There are times when you will. We, you, there are some jump scares. It's it's super creepy in an awesome way. It's, done it. Now you're playing it in VR. Yeah. Right. And and it's only in VR. Uh, yes. I think people have found ways to work around that, but it was designed from the ground okay, up for VR. So yeah, it and it is it is incredibly immersive. Like, they did a very good job with the environments and the controls and the detail with objects and physics. Of, of course, is actually just off the charts excellent. It's it's very very neat just from a VR experience perspective. I've barely scratched the surface on the game, so I can't speak to that too much. But the the environmentals are really cool. That's awesome. That's really which, I, which is actually a segue, if you want, to uh, Apple getting into the AR VR space. Oh, yeah. 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 What, what do you think about that? <sighs> <laughs> oh, I, I, they usually do amazing things when they put their mind to it. And so this could be like finally getting consumer grade AR um, or VR uh, capabilities. I, I would love, like, I mean, Google Glass. Came and went. Yeah, it would be interesting to see a you know an actual consumer friendly version of something like glass. It, that was pretty you know, creepy. Uh, <laughs> well, that's the problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and something about Google's implementation and putting a camera right there, front and center, I think really ended up being a huge turnoff for a lot of people. And if I remember reading some of the you know sort of leaked articles or design documents from what Apple is doing, that's one of the big lessons learned is don't throw a giant camera right in the front of it and and maybe don't even imply that you're recording everything all the time even though i mean for ar you kind of have to <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah i'm hopeful that their design considerations do help people you know just avoid some of the 
the immediate concern that they get from having something like that, just an always on sort of. Yeah. I, I mean, but in some ways, if you were going to walk down to a protest today, uh, you know, you're going to be recording every second of that anyway. Oh, yeah. People are, people, I, I can actually see some interesting applications where what a couple of years ago with Google Glass was not particularly a feature uh, people might look at as like, okay, there's times I actually need that. Yeah, um, interesting. Everybody has the body cams. Right? interface. Everybody has, yeah, it's personal body cams. Um, I'm not sure that's the future that I was I was hoping I would be living in. Right. Nothing about 2020 was the future <laughs> yeah. I thought I'd be living in. Bit so. dystopian. <laughs> what, I saw a tweet from the register this morning, um, and it, it just said, oh, I'm going to botched the phrasing, which was excellent, but effectively who decided to push 2020 to prod. And I got to, I got to get an <laughs> IT chuckle out of that. <laughs> That's oh, a good one. Dear. Well, so speaking of Apple, there's been some uh, news around them kind of dominating the past couple of days with them and Hey, which is an email app, I believe. <laughs> I haven't looked into it that much, but uh, I'm curious if either of y'all have. Um, so the number one article on tech meme right now apple rejects hey appeal noting email apps must work without paid subscription oh, wow. apple suggests offering in-app sub or to reconfigure app as imap or pop client i don't know if you have luck, looked into that at all but there's uh, i've seen a, a bunch of uh back and forth on that um dah oh, or okay. dhh on uh on twitter was talking about it so he's the creator of ruby on rails founder of uh, CTO at Basecamp, and I'm pretty sure that he helped launch Hey, interesting, uh, which is email by Basecamp. As an Android user, all I hear is Apple's walled garden still has walls. He, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Well, what was weird about it is that they they accepted it at first, mm. and then they switched gears, and then they suddenly rejected it. That's and they were going through this curious. appeal process, and it's all very very public. Um, and the tweets on it are just kind of crazy. I mean, people all over the place, a few days out from worldwide developer conference. And this is Apple's message to developers. It reads as you have no value to us unless you're earning us tons of cash. Oh, you know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't talk about it. If none of us know that much about what's going yeah, on. Yeah. I don't know but, enough uh, to, to get into that, but dig it in. certainly sounds like a curious topic. Um, something I'd like to know more about. This is that, that there is a general interesting thing about the growth of these platforms. Cause in the last, five years, we've really switched into a platform world for IT, whether it's cloud or the phones or things like that. And and the gatekeepers are, you know, very big companies from that perspective. Yeah, this is one of those ones I didn't pay a lot of attention to it because it looked like it was just an app, a war about apps. Yeah. And I totally missed uh, the DHH angle. Um, and because uh, that's where anytime you're, you're talking about that, then, then you're talking about electronic freedom and uh, right to use concerns and things like that. And so at some point we are going to have to figure out if these are actually open marketplaces um, or open public squares um, that anybody can access or if they're actually commercial commercial platforms. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm reading a little bit about it. It says the current experience of the Hey app, again, so this is an email app. The user is downloading it from the app store and then it does nothing. This is where they have the problem. Apple does, right? Because it's an app that requires you to then go to the Hey service and subscribe uh, before huh. it can become useful. They don't want an app that you can download and doesn't work and doesn't do anything. 
that that's the claim, but I'm not I'm not sure they actually care that it doesn't do anything, but they do care that the <laughs> only way for it to be monetized is external to the platform that they built, right? Like that I get it. Yeah. I totally get where they're coming from on that. And I'm not I'm not backing Apple on that, but I think Apple in particular, because I'd argue they're pretty good at figuring out how to make money off this kind of stuff, but they're not alone in it either. I'm sure Google is in the exact same boat. The The whole purpose of the marketplace is to scrape money as a provider of the forum, right? And, and having applications that are free sure. on the platform and then transact outside of the platform entirely, not just like microtransactions inside through the platform. Those are counter to the entire business yeah. model. Right. I'm all for people getting around it, but but I get the perspective, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're wanting you to pay for the app to download it yeah. or have in-app purchasing. They want to make money off of the app. They don't they don't want they don't want people going through their system and then not giving them their cut. Yeah. It's an in- interesting mix because if you look at some of the, the controversy around Facebook and the uh, takedown or at least the, the- the adding uh, digital content manipulation warnings and things mm-hmm. like that of, of political political ads um, and information, you, you you know there's there's a really interesting line where the walled garden might be protecting you, and you could see us see people justifying payment for that and demanding right that you're you're actually protecting the users by you know putting transactions through a trusted source oh, or sure. checking applications. Um, but how much responsibility do they then take for what happens on those platforms? And so far, they've traditionally said none at all. Yeah, it's not my problem. And and that's one of the issues, one of the biggest issues that I have with stuff like that too. You, I, I've seen some neat articles lately that talks about the you know whether it's Google's App Store or Apple's App Store where they're actually kind of going through and they're doing a better job of cleaning up malware. This tends to be more on the Google side because they're a lot more open. So I think there's some rear view looking stuff that they kind of have to go and adjust and make adjustments to how they allow apps on, right? But they they don't ever take responsibility for the stuff that goes poorly. <laughs> it, it's just like, well, yeah, it's it's an app store. We we did a lot of stuff up front to try to make it a better experience for you. But if we slipped up and something got through and it ended up catastrophic for you, it's like, well, you kind of downloaded it. So good luck. <laughs> I, it's it's a really it's a really interesting thing. There's not a lot of transparency. I was looking da- a little down about um, TikTok, about their video recommendation algorithm. Have yeah. y'all talked about that? No, particularly much? no, we haven't talked about TikTok at all, which is probably surprising. So I I learned something fascinating, and it looks like this this article um, TikTok describes its video recommendation algorithm um, and engagement metrics um, that that since TikTok is Chinese, one of the things culturally that they want and also that the, the, the government wants is people to have positive experience. So, so part of the algorithm is actually designed to have create positive feelings. Like a lot of the US hmm. algorithm stuff commercially is designed for engagement and it sort of drives anger and polarization yeah. and things like yeah. that because that's that's what engages <laughs> in, in China. They want, they want happy... <laughs> cheerful um it's it's apparently there's the top tiktoker um is a a 16 17 year old uh girl uh in the midwest and um it the algorithm actually incense you know it's it incense people be like oh that's the what everybody wants to see in their feed yeah that's wild i hadn't actually considered culturally how you would steer an algorithm like that right 
like the the source of engagement or the sentiment towards engagement could dramatically change what they're trying to trying to put in front of you or trying. I mean, that's even a strong word. I, I, my guess is that people that were coding that weren't thinking like, we got to get people to see positive content. They were probably just thinking, no, we want more engagement. And this is how we were, quote unquote, programmed to sort of engage. So that is a really neat topic. Yeah. I think this is this. This is straight down the lines of AI transparency and then looking at how AI algorithms actually make decisions and, and are, oh, yeah. you know, can we understand it and be transparent? That, that's an ongoing conversation. Yeah, which I'm all for in any of those platforms. Yeah, yes. YouTube, TikTok, whatever. Yeah, anything that, that promotes, anything that has a homepage. And it's cool to see too, TikTok specifically outline that it doesn't, it, it takes no account to... Um, follower count or whether the account has previously had high performing videos or anything like that, oh, which cool. is great for smaller, newer accounts. Yeah. I wonder if that will make it more successful uh, as a platform going forward, yeah. right? Because it's if it's more approachable, then newer content creators are more likely to continue to hop on board as opposed to saying, oh, well, there's no way I can catch up and compete. You know, let's look for the next big yeah. thing, next generational change, stuff like that. I think transparency in that regard is is huge and I would love to see more of it in general, I think transparency and how decisions are being made and how stuff is, is being sort of designed is good as long as it isn't IP, I guess, because I do understand trying to protect that. But I think it's also... Well, just telling you how you, telling them how you weight things, yeah. I don't think. Like, or you can just say in general, these are the types of things that we target, sure. right? But then it, I, I think so. it takes some additional transparency to make sure that the thing you said is actually trustworthy, though, too, right? Yeah, Say, saying it, I'm I'm doing all the good things. It's like, okay, we well, said that, but you know, there's a dumpster fire out there. You know, what are you what are you doing? Sure. What are you actually doing? It's like, oh, we don't want to talk about that, right? Well, if they're doing it right, then it's not only great for the content content creator, but the the watcher as well, because yeah. what you both care about is discoverability, right? Tyler, you and I talk about that all the time from the music perspective, right? How do we discover the next new thing? Like, give me some sort of algorithm, and, and you know, we've I know we've talked about. Yeah some of the different music platforms and how they might go through like Pandora versus uh, Spotify versus Amazon music right. versus Apple music, et cetera. If I give them a subset of songs, what are, what is each one of those going to tell me is the next song that I'll like? Yeah. How good are they at doing that? Well, and how much variety how too. They? That's one of my biggest criticisms. Right. And we, like you said, we've had this conversation. One of my biggest criticisms of Amazon music in particular, because I use it a lot with the Alexa devices and stuff is that I don't find new music unless I seek it out and then add it to sort of my listen list, or I try to base a song off of a newer song and stuff like that. It, it mm -hmm. cycles the same stuff over and over and over again, which isn't all bad. Like, that can be good if it's your liked songs and your radio, what what have you. But it's pretty terrible for finding new content. It's interesting. So I, I use Napster, um, which used to be Rhapsody, or used yeah. to be Napster, then was Rhapsody. <laughs> yeah, I, I you still it. using Napster? Yeah. Tell today? me, tell me more about this because <laughs> I remember the transitions Wait. you just talked about, except for that last one that it's still alive. <laughs> yeah, it's, still, it's still, Rhapsody. Rhapsody decided to convert back to the Napster no brand, kidding. which I still have. What? Trouble. I totally missed. Okay, this. I need to insert like a record scratch yeah. sound effect. <laughs> I did not know it was still alive. You heard it here, folks. Napster is still alive. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a big a big fan. Uh, but I, cool. you know, it's it's one of those things. You you know your my my profile. But they they do one is you can 
tell it how much variation you want in that in that list. Oh, cool. Um, and if you see the list well, you end up with more variation. Like if you you know if you pick three or four different songs that are different, then you get a, a, a broader spectrum. And uh, the like, I've been on a. I'll turn on endless playback. I'll, I'll let it pick some songs, and then I'll, cool. I'll turn it off again, um, and then weed through that that list. Um, but I've I've gotten some really good recommendations out of their algorithm. That's great. Um, lately, from that perspective, that's pretty cool. That is cool. Uh, well, there you go. Amazon, go go buy Napster. Apparently, they're still worth some stuff, and and do it. And I'm sorry, I, I have to tell Amazon to do that because I absolutely love and listen to most of my music at this point through Alexa devices. So, yep, I am captive in that marketplace. So when I hear cool things, I'm all for them just going and slurping them up. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredibly hard to switch a subscription once you, once, oh, you, once you've got that that commitment in yep uh, that's a funny so true so true well hey I, I had some other news to shift a bit there were a couple of fun space topics that i saw in the last few days and uh one that caught my eye a couple of days ago is actually nasa's new horizons craft has experimentally confirmed or or has gotten far enough away from our well, our center, right? So Earth in this case, but um, to actually see stellar parallax. Um, and so the New Horizons craft is over 4.3 billion miles from Earth. Dang. Am, I do- am I chopping out like crazy? All right. Yeah. <laughs> Brutal. Having flashbacks no to when, when uh, we were using Zencaster with, with Latest Shiny. Do you use something else? We, we just use Zoom. So we started oh, with, okay. with Zen, we, we used Zencaster for a while. We used Ringer, which is also very good. And then eventually um, it only takes a couple of times where you lose somebody's audio track or the synchronization is messed up and you we fell back. Uh, you know, yeah. most most guests we have don't require a lot of post. It's you know, we're not we're not trying to do um, studio edits. From that mm-hmm. perspective, my, I save my radio voice for special occasions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we used Cast Studio to start with, but they so I discovered a rare bug according to them on like our second or first and second episodes. The audio would get out of sync, so like Tyler's audio would go faster as you go through the episode in playback, and it would by the end of the episode, he's interrupting everybody, and it's just hilarious <laughs> to listen to. Um, it's weird. So I left them and went to Zencaster, and we haven't had any issues uh, at all. It's been fantastic yeah, until until today. Tyler decided to go out to the, the boonies. Way. All right, so try it again now that we can hear you. Yeah, well, we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah, NASA's New Horizon craft. It's four point three billion miles from Earth now, and I love. I just love astronomic scale. Yeah, exactly. Billion with a B, and um, it it sent back a signal um, at the speed of light. It's a radio signal, right? So it took about thirty minutes to reach us, and it is images of you know the universe from a perspective 4.3 billion miles away so we get to see stellar parallax it's neat because we know obviously this happens the further you get away from an object like space should look different but it's cool because it's another one of those just highlights the sheer scale of uh you know cosmology which it had to get 4.3 billion miles away to see stars differently in space. So it'd be kind of like you standing next to a friend in your neighborhood and saying, Hey, go, go across the street and tell me how different the moon looks. Well, it doesn't look different from your perspective. Um, It it took a craft getting that far away from us to see measurable distances in the way the night sky, if you will, looks to us. Um, And it's not even out of our solar system yet. (laughs) Yeah. So, 
I, I just quickly looked up how many light years is 4.3 billion miles. <laughs> swag at that. I was trying to convert it to parsecs. <laughs> it's light minutes. Yeah. Roughly 30 of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 0. 0.0007 light years. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So the, I learned some stuff about New Horizons too because I haven't heard about it in a while. And it was it was actually the first probe that got really close to Pluto. Um, and if I remember correctly, it may have been the reason Pluto was demoted. Um, but I, I don't know that for certain. So. <laughs> there, there was definitely there that was in 2015 there's some good science that came out of pluto from that perspective there's a lot of great space science going always yes oh it's on fire right now and we're having a field day with it because we dig it okay anything else you want to plug we've been we've been you know we, we have a lot of fun with the physical physical layer automation and infrastructures code you know immutable infrastructure things like that um I, you know i've been really excited about some of the raspberry pi stuff that that uh, we've been playing with and doing as far as a way to, to, to make infrastructure accessible to people again. Um, and it, it's, you know, we were really skeptical about, you know, whether or not the pies were real as like, I'm a, you know, real it, grrr, you know, get my, get my Wheaties and, and make sure that I'm, I'm keeping the data centers alive. <laughs> and, and the, the idea with, Raspberry Pi is actually being able to provide some useful infrastructure struck me as sort of crazy, but we're actually seeing them as, you know, a decent playground. And I think if, if you start thinking about what infrastructure looks like in three or four years, Mm -hmm. these low cost devices are actually potentially, you know, fieldable. Um, You know, we spent time about snow cone and things like that. I am not a huge fan of, of proprietary vertical stacks. And so I'm, I'm actually optimistic that we can be building something that people can actually still use and play with and buy without engaging multinational corporations. So that's, that would be the biggest thing. That's edgelab.digital, which so we, you know, it's a playground for people. Um, awesome. Go. go check it out. Yeah, I'm going to go check it out. Those are fun. 500 bucks, you can have a working cluster and it's cool. No, that, that's really cool. And I, I got back into pies recently and, um, I mean, I've always had a few laying around the house doing this project, that kind of project. But uh, when the the four came out, I got one and just started kicking the tires again. And I ran into like the Bellina cloud. So it's basically a pipeline. It, mm-hmm. it totally changed the way that I deal with my pies too, because it, it's actually just tons of fun to sort of operate them that way. Um, and so I have a renewed interest in sort of looking into and we, deploying we will, new projects. We will blow you away because we added net booting. All right. So we cool. actually have simple, reliable net boot. So you can pixie boot, and especially the new ones, they just came out with the eight eight uh, gigs of RAM. More RAM, yeah. And so, yeah, these are real computing devices. Yeah, um, yeah. It's four, the four was a big jump. Yeah, no, it's very cool. And and obviously, to the Pi's credit, right, they're still very inexpensive, which makes them so accessible. That's cool. But that's definitely something I'll dig into. Anyways, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. That brings another Tech Breakfast podcast to a close, everybody. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And as always, if you've got news that we missed, general feedback, or the urge to join us for a recording, hit us up. Let us know. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll talk to you next week.